Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the discussion series in How Hebel on Ufa, Burning Futures, on Ecologies of Existence. In this series, we look at the planet from an intersectional perspective that includes more than human relations, the organic and inorganic ecosystems, and its interconnections with the social heritage of modernity, capitalism, colonialism, and patriarchy. This is the fifth and last edition of Burning Futures in this theater season. We have the pleasure to present a podcast conversation with art historian and cultural critic T.J. Demos and the award-winning artist collective, the Otolith Group, founded by Angelika Zagar and Kojo Eshon on their recent film, Infinity Minus Infinity. The title of the discussion, Beyond the End of the World, Unacknowledged Loss, Racial Capitalism and Ecofictional Futurity. So this time we take on the series initial thread on the discourses of the end of the world against the background of the present moment in a global pandemic as well as the context of the radical movements of Black Lives Matter and link all this to the notion of unacknowledged loss. Unacknowledged loss is the notion that connects this discussion of burning futures with the research and residence project of How, initiated by Barbara Race and carried out by 10 resident artists working on the topic of mourning, and farewell rituals today. T.J. Demos and the Otolith Group discuss unacknowledged loss in regards to the Otolith Group's film Infinity Minus Infinity by making clear that racial genocide and ecocide are the very origins of the Anthropocene. The How curator, Margarita Tsomu, and the co-curator of the series, Maximilian Haas, will introduce the subject. Hello, in the name of Hau Hebelam Ufa, and thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. Since this is the last edition of the discourse series in this theater season, I would like to briefly recapitulate our discursive journey in the last year in order to make an arch to today's subjects of discussion with TJ Demos and the Autolite Group. So we started off the series in the last fall with a discussion on facing extinction, where Franco Berardi Bifo talked about the exhaustion of the capitalocene and the disappearance of the projections of progress into the future, while Marcela Vecchione from the Institute for Amazonian Studies in Brazil presented anti-colonial perspectives on an extinction that has long been reality for indigenous lives. We went on with Ende Gelände and Andreas Malm's analysis of fossil capital, as well as Andrea Fetter's arguments for a degrowth future demanding to leave the colonial petrocapitalist present behind. In the midst of the corona crisis, we interviewed the evolutionary biologist Rob Wallace on the interconnection between our encroachment into the forests in the context of global food markets and the proliferation of viruses spilling over to humans in the last decades. And finally, we discussed the term planetarity as a convivial practice of care with Patricia Reed. So now, with this fifth edition of the series, we take on our initial thread on the discourses of the end of the world this popular and old biblical visions of the apocalypse as the ultimate event of a universal downfall and the temporality that the apocalyptic might entail, namely that we might be in a too little, too late moment, as stated by Brazilian theorists Deborah Danowski and Eduardo Vivieros de Castro. They say, quote, everything that can be said about the climate crisis is by definition anachronistic, obsolete, and everything that can be done about it is necessarily too little and too late, end of quote. 
Thus, we would like to combine this line of thought of the series with the present moment in a global pandemic, link the ongoing climate catastrophe with the history of racial capitalism in the context of the radical movements of Black Lives Matter, and connect all this to the notion of unacknowledged loss. Unacknowledged loss is the title and the subject of the research and residence project in Howe, initiated by Barbara Rice and carried out by 10 resident artists working on the topic of mourning and farewell rituals today. Unacknowledged Loss is also the closing project of the Howe Theatre's strangely corona-interrupted season, and we decided to connect today's Burning Futures edition to the subject of loss. Because, of course, in eco-philosophical thinking and activism, discourses of loss have been urgently and repeatedly articulated. We talk about the loss of species and biodiversity, the loss of landscapes and habitats, the loss of human lives, especially those affected by dispossession and destruction in the context of colonial extractivist petrocapitalism, and we talk as well about the entanglement of these multiple losses resulting in the question of loss of futurity. The corona crisis accelerated this confrontation with loss, vulnerability, the experience of mortality and death, while talking about the slow death of ecosystems following our incapability to perceive, measure and sense environmental destruction in the global north, corona stroke with a shock of potential quick death, while revealing its interconnectedness with the destruction of animal living environments, as well as with the failure of current social and medical care systems. Again here, risk and care infrastructures prove to be unevenly distributed across the planet, revealing the necropolitical priorities of colonial governance habituses that demonstrated whose lives are worthy enough to be protected or considered grievable. Black Lives Matter movements around the globe are currently revolting against this tradition of white supremacist violence and death regime. In his essay on the three ecologies, Felix Gattery argues that the spheres of subjectivity, society and the environment cannot be separated from each other any longer. They must be addressed together. Now more than ever, he says, and this is 1989, nature cannot be separated from culture. In order to comprehend the interactions between ecosystems, the mechanosphere and the social and individual universes of reference, we must learn to think transversely. In order to invent new ways or arts of living that escape these forms, we must, in theory and practice, compare forms of oppression, map and cultivate relations, and shared concerns between these three ecologies. In his later and last book on Chaos Moses, Gattari imagined a new aesthetic paradigm that takes aesthetic production and experience beyond the confines of the art world, as suited for the creation of other, less harmful ecologies of existence. In its politically oriented transversality, this approach could be connected to Kimberly Crenshaw's influential concept of intersectionality from that very same year. And indeed, both references form landmarks between which this series and maybe also this edition of it develop. This, however, is up to our guests who have long been working on these intersectional positions and transversal movements, bridging politics and aesthetics. The art historian and cultural critic T.J. Demos, based in Santa Cruz, writes on contemporary art and visual culture, particularly in relation to globalization, migration and ecology. His recent work, including the influential books Against the Anthropocene and Decolonizing Nature, walks the bridge between politics and aesthetics both ways as it discusses eco-activist practices in the arts and aesthetically critiques environmental politics. In his upcoming book, Beyond the End of the World, he engages in the politics of ecological temporalities and develops the notion of eco-fiction for a training of the not yet, for a future world-building in multi-species symbiosis or sympoesis. The award-winning artists' collective, the Otolith Group, founded by Angelica Sagar in Koju Eshun in London, creates films, installations and performances driven by the exploration of the history of science fiction, Afrofuturism in particular, 
and the legacies of political transnationalism. In recent years, they have extended this approach cosmopolitically to the non-human, and I quote, the non-human and the complexity of the environmental conditions of life with which we are all confronted. And accordingly, the earth has been a major player in their work. Their artistic practice also engages with the politics of time through moving images as trans-temporal media for speculative futures engendered by the histories and presences of diverse political struggles. So we're happy to give over the mics to our three speakers, um, taking the recent film Infinity Minus Infinity by the Autolith Group as points of departure, the discussion might touch on genocide and ecocide at the origins of the quote-unquote Anthropocene, the biopolitics of citizenship and deportation, and the loss around which the Black Lives Matter movement assembles, as well as on art as a means to imagine eco-fictional futures beyond the end of the world. So, the Autolith Group and TJ Demos, we're happy to give you the audio floor. Thank you, Margarita and Max, and everyone at uh, the How. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with Kojo and Anjali of the Autolith Group. When I received the invitation to address the topic of unacknowledged loss uh, within the broader framework of burning futures, I thought this was a really appropriate opportunity to initiate a discussion with Kojo and Anjali about their recent film, Infinity Minus Infinity which was produced in 2019, uh, approximately 50 minutes in length. And it, it speaks in, in really profound ways about the present conjuncture of crises that we're living through right now in terms of pandemic biopolitics and uh, the global uprisings against racialized capitalism. First, a brief description of the film Infinity Minus Infinity draws on dance and music, recital, digital animation to compose a transhistorical zone in which the unpayable debts of racial capitalism cannot be separated from the ongoing crimes of capitalogenic climate catastrophe. The film enacts the durational timelines of past distress, present duress, and future dread through the assembly of a chorus of trans-temporal deities whose utterances, expressions, gestures, and movements personify the compounded, accumulated, and irreparable times and spaces of the hostile environment. Um, also, the film, in a, a way, a kind of a deep historical presentation of geological timescales mapped onto uh, recent and historical sociopolitical and racial events Uh, draws on the work of a range of inspiring and important writers like the Jamaican poet Una Marson, the Martinican philosopher and poet Edouard Glissant, uh, the black feminist poetics of Brazilian philosopher Denise Ferreira da Silva, and the studies of racial geology by the British geographer Catherine Youssef in order to dramatize uh, its audio-visual experiment in what the Audelith group calls choreopoetics. Okay, so if you haven't seen the film, we're going to talk about it in ways that attempt to open it up and make it legible to listeners. For me, I'll just briefly say before we open up the conversation, the film connects to lots of things I've been thinking about and writing about recently, including the topic of the Anthropocene, the new geological intervention within natural and human history that posits we're living in a new epoch beyond the Holocene, that figures Anthropos, this universal and in some ways generic subject, as the geological subject of the Anthropocene, that is the era in which human activities determine the Earth's natural systems in ways that are historically unprecedented. My own relationship to this is quite critical in terms of attempting to uncover the problematic de-differentiation of this universalist subjectivity in ways that clouds over the differentiated causality of what has created the Anthropocene and also hides the disproportionate and uneven impacts of climate violence on differentiated populations. 
Uh, this comes up powerfully in Infinity Minus Infinity because there's a lot of resonance with the film's relation to situating the origins of the Anthropocene in the long history of colonial violence and the conquering of the Americas, which initiated a massive loss of human life uh, to, you know, approximating some 50 million uh, people, uh, which is actually recorded materially in the fossil record insofar as this canceled out large-scale farming allowed for reforestation at the time. And by 1610, there was a measurable spike um, that allows geographers to date one potential beginning of the Anthropocene with the uptake of carbon by that new vegetation, which is the result or the afterlife of that initial genocide. So one initial question, if we're indeed talking about beyond the end of the world, it's important to point out that the end of the world isn't at all necessarily in front of us. Rather, for many people, it's behind us and we're living in the wake. We're living in the aftermath of various ends, the ends of genocide, the ends of slavery, the ends of uh, ecocide, the ends of past catastrophe. And this is something that infinity minus infinity uh, allows us to think about in ways that are prescient, but also deeply historical. So um, there's lots more to talk about. I'm wondering maybe, um, Koju and Anjali, if you want to intervene at this point and talk more specifically about how the film deals with the connection between racialized geology and Anthropocene discourse and its relationship to transatlantic slavery and more recent versions of racial capitalism. Um, I mean, maybe we can start at the beginning, uh, which is, you know, where the idea came from to make this film. It was actually convergences of various things. One was the relationship that we have as a kind of long-standing friendship with Denise Ferreira da Silva and her thinking on, you know, the question of value and the commodification of the body, of the black body. That was one aspect. Then there was her term poetics. And then there was listening to Sadia Hartman, another friend, and uh, a writer whose work we respect tremendously. Then there was uh, Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake. So let's say a series of... Uh, African-American, Afro-Brazilian feminist writers, revolutionary writers, one might say as well, whose work, for me, brought together a varying kind of relationship to different temporalities, which were placed together, if you like, in order to produce a counter-presence to the all-encompassing kind of draining presence of the internet and of the world as it is. Then there was this term that I was thinking a lot about how racism um, is the weather these days, which is a kind of very British way of saying, oh, you know, um, it's normal. You know, racism is suddenly very normal all of a sudden. Not that it's ever gone away, but let's say it's popularised within populism. So the racism being the weather as such, the normal, and then racism actually being at the heart of what climate change is about and thinking about how there is no environmental justice without racial justice, the kind of whiteness of the Extinction Rebellion um, demonstrations, um, one began to wonder how one might construct a film which puts this condensed reality of relation into a series of um, narratives that could somehow conjoin. This felt critical for us at the time because of the sense of things becoming out of control. How do you explain to people that climate change is caused by racism? These require scalar levels of thinking that... Um, one can begin to feel quite panicked about when you're thinking about how normal people who don't have an education in all of this might um, respond. So this was the initial idea behind the work, to create a essay film, but also, let's say, 
something of a surreal fairy tale, if you like, a dark fairy tale, some kind of thinking around this poetics, thinking around poetics and this kind of almost like a riddle, you know. Um, Denise Ferrer de Silva says, now that everything is known, we have to think about fiction again. And there is this sense of, you know, how does fiction um, play a role in our thinking now when everything that we experience is kind of, you know, animated with narratives. The relationship that we have to this all-present knowledge is full of, is riddled, let's say, with narratives that organise our experience and our social relations and our imaginative kind of grasp of um, the cosmos. So for us, we had this kind of science fiction folkloric impulse, thinking around what new entities might be that tell stories, how these um, fictions might become new myths to think about uh, in relation to this question around racial capitalism and climate change. So we also wanted to make something quite horrific. I mean, horror is a genre that has been flattened and there's much more to think about with horror, I think, um, once we begin to allow things to get, well, you put it as unacknowledged loss, but into the kind of uh, violence and uh, brutality of what's really going on now. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, thanks to TJ, thanks to Maximilian, to Margarita, to the whole team at Howe, and to Anjali for kind of opening up some of the questions. I think um, when a new work's made, it's a question of registering urgencies and necessities and forces that play on you. So in the case of making infinity minus infinity this question of the hostile environment and what that means in the British context took on a large significance. Uh, For those who don't know, the hostile environment is a policy formulated by the Tory Conservative government who have been in power since 2010, specifically formulated by uh, Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, in 2014, which is supposed to round up and deport so-called illegal immigrants. The way in which this policy is formulated is flexible and plastic enough such that it works by revoking the citizenship of people who cannot prove their citizenship via documentation. So what this policy ends up doing is rescinding the citizenship of the so-called Windrush generation. That's to say that's people who uh, were invited as children to travel from the crown colonies of the Caribbean to the United Kingdom in the post-war era, in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. They were invited to travel to Britain to uh, become educated here and to contribute to the reconstruction of the British state after World War II. So most of these people are working class people who are now in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And the hostile environment works by revoking their citizenship so that their ability to live in this country is gradually removed and they are either detained or forcibly deported. So you have, since 2014, you have the spectacle of more and more Caribbean people in their 60s and 70s and 80s uh, being uh, detained and deported. And so many people, I would say the majority of British, Asian, African and Caribbean peoples are outraged by this. You're outraged by this. What we've begun to understand was that this policy of the hostile environment is in fact the British version of what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlife of slavery. This is the form it takes inside of Britain. So as Anjali said, we are great readers and admirers of Sadia Hartman's work. 
And her work has really been dedicated to analysing what she calls the afterlife of slavery in an American context. And she defines the afterlife of slavery as follows. She says, if slavery persists as an issue in the political life of black America, it is not because of an antiquarian obsession with bygone days or the burden of a too long memory, but because black lives are still imperiled and devalued by a racial calculus and a political arithmetic that were entrenched centuries ago. This is the afterlife of slavery. Skewed life chances, limited access to health and education, premature death, incarceration and imprisonment. So it's immediately clear how that relates to and is exacerbated by corona, the COVID-19 pandemic. It's immediately clear how the pandemic exaggerates the existing tendencies, the political arithmetic and racial calculus of the afterlife of slavery in the US. So Dear Hartman gives us a vocabulary that goes beyond the news, goes beyond social media, and it allows us to see that in its duration. And what we wanted to do with Infinity Minus Infinity was work out the British dimension of this. We felt that the British dimension was under-theorised and under-processed compared to the American case. We felt there was not enough attention, not enough publicly acknowledged discourse and articulation around this question. And so if the hostile environment is the visible sign of the afterlife of slavery, what we started to do was trace the afterlife of slavery back and forwards in time. And once you do that, you start moving on a temporal continuum in which the moments in time, such as 2014, 1948, 1961, 1830, 1610, 2030, you start to accumulate a timeline and the video that we produced is an attempt to create a compounded, accreted timeline in which the hostile environment is an ongoing series of crimes, actually, which are continuing into the present. So in 1833, Britain abolishes slavery and the abolition of slavery is accompanied by a 20 million pound bailout for the 46,000 slave owners. The 640,000 slaves across the Caribbean get nothing. The slave owners get 20 million. That is such a huge figure in 1830 that the British state is forced to take out a loan. It's 40% of the entire economy of the British state as it was then. In order to pay for this loan, the British state passes it on to the British taxpayer, who does not complete paying back this loan until 2015. So that means from 1838, when the process of compensation is completed, it takes from 1834 to 1838 to pay those slave owners. From 1838 until 2015, every resident British person has been paying back that 20 million. Actually, they've been paying 10 million. The rest of it was paid back by slaves who were forced to work for another four to six years. So none of this became clear until 2018, when the Treasury, someone in the Treasury, 
in the UK tweeted this fact. They said in a so-called fun-filled Friday fact that, you know, congratulations, your taxes helped to free the slaves. I'm paraphrasing. It was the realization that we, that's to say, generations since had been paying that back. This seemed to us proof again of the particularly British form that the afterlife of slavery takes. So when you start putting these together, you start to get a picture of a uniquely malevolent form of racial capitalism in Britain in which the unpayable debt, the unacknowledged debt, the irreparable evil of slavery is inseparable from the political calculations which bear down on African, Asian and white and Caribbean peoples in Britain today. And you begin to get the beginnings of a vocabulary for why Britain operates like it does. And as Anjali says, for us, it becomes a question of working with an interscalar aesthetic, creating a kind of audiovisual assemblage that works in what Gabrielle Hecht in her essay on the African Anthropocene, calls an interscalar vehicle. It's a question of creating a poetics that works as a vehicle that can move across the scales of time and category in order to articulate the inextricable co-constitutiveness of these elements, to bring them into relation to make them public, as Anjali says, to bring out the horror, the unacknowledged horror of these. And, you know, the fact that all around us, young people are outraged is an acknowledgement of that unacknowledged horror of the British version of racial capitalism, which is inseparable from what we call the capitalism. Racial capitalism is the modality through which the capitalism operates. And so these large-scale questions, questions which are unbearably abstract, it becomes a question of how to concretize these questions, how to draw them together and this these become the kinds of aesthetic decisions that we take in order to make the crises speak i think this is really helpful in understanding the uh, the aesthetic and uh, political and socio-environmental ambition of this project, Infinity Minus Infinity. Also, in thinking about beyond the end of the world, which is a phrase that as soon as you start to unpack it, you realize uh, there's no simple beyond. There's no single world. And the ends have been reiterated and repeated throughout history in various ways. And this notion of a multi-scalar vehicle as characterizing the aesthetic and political project of a film work. We can understand the value in that when we consider one phrase that appears somewhere in the middle of the film as a refrain, I can't breathe. This is from the film from last year, from 2019. In other words, in advance of the current global uprisings that have been sparked by the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. So in that sense, the film was incredibly prescient. But it was also, of course, retrospective in acknowledging the police murder of Eric Garner in 2014. Those are, however, still only, you know, relatively local events. 
Um, I think the wider implications of this phrase, I can't breathe, is opened up in really startling ways in the film. Uh, and the dates that Kojo just mentioned, such as 1830, against those, Angelique mentioned uh, Extinction Rebellion and their declaration of a climate emergency that is positioned within the future. And I think, I think this is really important in uh, expanding this moment even more and seeing how we're dealing with a topological account of worlds within worlds. Uh, and they're not always continuous or in solidarity. In fact, they're deeply conflictual. And one's emergency can completely erase another's emergency. So when environmentalists and activists, again, you know, aligned with the formation like Extinction Rebellion, despite the fact that this is uh, very geographically differentiated in different formations around the world, it's become a complex movement. But when Extinction Rebellion is concerned about breathing, they're thinking about, in some ways, a kind of generic carbon crisis in the near future that is bringing catastrophe in what's to come. Whereas when we think of I can't breathe in other registers, it has to do with this long history, this insufferable existential dread of these moments of genocide and ecocide and slavery and its afterlife, its unending uh, and unacknowledged loss and consequently its unacknowledged and unending debt. So how can we possibly begin to think of these two together? This is a real question of political ecology or socio-environmental uh, complexity that I think the, the film begins to address in terms of what this hostile environment is. Uh, and it, of course, resonates with stuff that's going on in the U.S. right now, where I can't breathe is simultaneously something that expresses a refusal of the ongoingness of police brutality directed disproportionately at people of color. But also, it's something that registers the continuation of toxic environmental racism, where black and brown communities we know historically are disproportionately situated near toxic waste sites and hazardous materials, incinerators. And this is a long history. So when People of color, when black and brown bodies are breathing, typically they're breathing air that is subjected to this toxic environmentalism. So the very air we breathe, in other words, is racialized. It's a racialized atmospheric geography. So I can't breathe has to be situated within that framework of environmental inequality. And it also, I can't breathe, also relates to healthcare disparities, this is present, I think, in the UK, but it's also even more extreme in the privatized, dysfunctional system of healthcare or the lack thereof in the states, which we're all confronting right now. So one enormous question is how do we think across these scales of organizing and mass movement politics that potentially create a condition of immense complexity where it makes it difficult to bring together environmentalism that is focused almost obsessively on a coming future catastrophe, right? XR's slogan is often the death of the future. How do we bring that together with the continuation of Sadia Hartman's afterlife of slavery, with those conditions, with the ongoingness of racial capitalism, and it's socio-environmental racism. How do we possibly think these together? I think this is a, a, a massive challenge at the present. And when environmentalists complain about why there's not wider participation in their struggles, especially within communities of color, this is an obvious reason why, right? Because they're not speaking the same language. They're not sharing the same history. They're not positing the same future. They're not even operating in the same world. Um, 
I want to read something by Denise, which I think we can draw from, we can think with. The category of blackness, the category of blackness exists in as thought, always already a referent of commodity, an object, and the other as a fact beyond evidence. A poetics of blackness would announce a whole range of possibilities for knowing, doing, and existing, for releasing blackness from the registers of the object, the commodity, or the other would halt the trial of Trayvon Martin's killer before it is added to the already huge library of racial facts and precedents that authorise racial violence. So what she is saying is that the commodification of the category of blackness having produced a concept of the black body as being a commodity, an object, already displaces it from being evidence, right? From that body being evidence of any kind of crime imposed on the body. I mean, just to go back a little bit into the I can't breathe question. When the film was made, we were thinking of the sense of breath, right? The breath as being the vehicle through which we move towards a meditation, let's say. So it it is the kind of key to knowledge, to knowing, right? The pulse of the breath. So when we were working with other members of the group who were performing and writing and thinking with us to make this film... You know, this character that Essie is, is a multi-headed god whose thinking converges, multiple forms of thinking converge upon one thought. So her saying, I can't breathe, we were thinking of the chokehold, Sandra Bland, and also of pollution at the time. But now we are living in a different convergence. So the, the I can't breathe statement has taken on a different convergence now because of course it is our fundamental point of uh, being alive is to breathe but a series of convergences as you point out have been materializing around this around breath one is taking the knee to honor black life the other is taking the knee to take away black life so when denise says releasing blackness from the registers of the object The poetics of blackness would announce for a whole range of possibilities of knowing, doing and existing. I think of um, this, the poetics, as this, right? These are the poetics. The knee taking black life and the knee honouring black life. There you have an example of a kind of way of thinking around these events, these convergences poetically, if you like, and put these events in relation to each other. Almost like a kind of interscalar psychedelia, you know. If we think of psychedelia, something that exists outside, you know, beyond the field of the knowable, that exists as a time that is all present and also future time and past time, we can think of the convergences of time in an interesting way to think about the scalar, interscalar vehicle as one that is moving through kind of uh, many different temporalities and events uh, which which almost appear psychedelic. Yeah, how to think these divergent temporalities or these kind of divergent accumulations of indebtednesses which exceed capitalization, part of the project of an interscalar aesthetic is to insist on their discrepancy. So the continual shrinking and expanding of scales within the video, the way figures are both giant, epic, cosmological, five-headed entities, and then are shrunk so that they stand on the shoulders of other entities or so that they dance 
inside of datascapes or that entities open their mouths which become tunnels of light and sound it's the question of what aesthetic can we adopt in order to capture processes which are not phenomenally perceivable but which are nonetheless visceral in order to grasp processes which are entirely affectable but are not immediately graspable i think there was also a sense of how does one produce an aesthetic that does not allow whiteness to feel redeemed where blackness isn't a commodity value anymore that does roam free that does defeat the categories of the racialized or class categories or gendered categories that one is complete that one is constantly identified by how does one you know create an, a resilient resistant uh, aesthetic in this way yeah i think one of the other crucial parts of the uh, film in this uh, morphology of multiscalar aesthetics and topologies connecting and thinking through dates in chronological ways and in historical ways where we can only live through this this history in developing a future but i wanted to return back to what angelie was just talking about in reference to uh denis ferrer de silva's notion of blackness as indeterminacy which you draw on in the film and becomes so crucial in thinking about blackness as a historical site of uh, valuelessness within racial capitalism's biopolitical economy basically monetizing everything uh, from slavery's relation to race to more recent conditions of a crass points-based migration system that rewards wealth with citizenship and yet within Ferrer de Silva's work uh this eventually comes to propose a, a revolutionary act of transformation where blackness comes to signify refusal right of that overarching system a system that basically she's talking about the history of european enlightenment thinking going back to kant and hegel it's really massively historically significant so she's challenging the whole paradigm of racial capitalism through this portal of undeterminedness uh which is a kind of black hole of valuelessness and black holes feature prominently also within this film but also the radical negation of any kind of notion of calculative rationality that i found incredibly compelling and for me who's what a white person it challenges the politics of valuation that were all entrapped within though especially historically people of color and black people in seeking to answer the question you know we this is something that we've been faced with recently in relationship to George Floyd's murder what is black life worth right it, he was killed outside a, a Minneapolis store after a shopkeeper called 911 the the emergency phone number for the police owing to his using a counterfeit $20 bill right so this question has become urgent in terms of what is black life worth right black lives matter but what does it mean to matter what kind of materiality are we talking about but it also challenges the politics of valuation in general which resonates very powerfully today with the ambitions of green capitalism seeking in other words ways of uh, valuing so-called natural services as if that's the best way to save the planet by monetizing ecosystems by putting a price on water air privatizing the atmosphere commodifying life commodifying animal life and more than human life but it also in other words challenges white environmentalism and i'm wondering i think there's something that is really potentially redemptive that is both singular to a revolutionary black critique of humanism but it's also something that needs to contribute to the thinking beyond white supremacy but also maybe even the historical conditions of whiteness right there's something like a black hole of indeterminacy that can be a form of emancipation for those of us who carry our own burdens of whiteness of white privilege of the history of all the unacknowledged losses that we're talking about of uh unrecuperable debt of unpayable debt right there's something really 
Like, what does that mean in terms of a, a future of the not yet that is uh, filled with complete indeterminacy? I think the film speaks to that position um, tacitly or obliquely as well. Denise Ferreira de Silva says, what is the unquestioned question? And that question is the question that you point to. The question is, why don't black lives matter? That's the question. And uh, in order to begin to think this through, one has to take Sadia Hartman's emphasis on racial calculation and political arithmetic and go beyond, uh, beyond journalism, beyond statistics, beyond calculation in order to work out what is at stake in these fundamental operations. I think for Denise, this requires a nullification of the fundamental philosophical concepts that organise time and space. She ends by demanding a point which is out of time and out of space. And this mathematical nullification is what she calls a guide to the imagination. She's challenging us to imagine what it means to dismantle the categories of time and space. And so Denise has this very patient and careful mathematical nullification, which attempts to defuse and dismantle the category of blackness as it's formed by Kant, Hegel, Locke, Hume, Heidegger, Bishop Berkeley, Bergson, you name it. Every single Western philosopher that we know is in agreement that the category of blackness functions as the category of negative value. It doesn't matter which philosophy you look at, there will always be some moment at which they will turn to the figure of blackness. And this figure is that which is without value, which supports the value of everything that is reasonable, possessive, individualized, self-determined, self-possessed. So Denise doesn't want to contradict this because contradiction would stay inside the schema of value. She wants to nullify it. So this makes Denise one of the most important philosophers of our time because she's made this systematic attempt to travel back to the infrastructure of knowledge and dismantle it as it plays out in the present. Of course, one has to fight from within the racial category and from within the gendered category or within the class category and be specific about that fight. But I think blackness, for me, is that which disidentifies with the categories in a multiscalar way, um, has found a kind of technology to do that. I think the question is, uh, it's related to chronopolitics, the politics of time, the politics of temporalization, the question of what it means to create what our friends, the Black Quantum Futurism group call temporal reclamation, the questions of chronopolitical interventions. There are multiple methods. Denise's appeals for this project because of the emphasis on nullification, because it's such a challenge to thought. Denise's interest in nullification and nihilism is such a compelling thought at this moment. We're drawn to the intensity and the fundamental nature of her challenge. That's part of why Denise's work assumes the importance that it does for us at this time. 
Yes, and maybe maybe also TJ, how would you relate this to your way of ecological temporality? How can we think this in the discourses of the Anthropocene, the Capitalocene? Well, um, I'm looking at different modelings within contemporary practice of what I'm calling radical futurisms. And this is drawing in part on Afrofuturisms, on indigenous futurisms, and other kind of models of uh, radical that simultaneously reaches out to deep structural analysis of conditions of inequality and uh, ecocide today, but also multi-species notions of attendance to the more-than-human world. But speaking of that, you know, I, I think it's important to also consider other articulations of this critique of chronology, of chronopolitics being practiced in other traditions that are emerging today, like uh, indigenous slipstream, for instance, or quantum time justice chronopolitics, which I think is really crucial, like, for instance, black quantum futurism, but lots of other groups, or the work of uh, my colleague Karen Broad within her writing about feminist science studies and quantum field theory in relationship to um, her complete refusal of the capitalist, say, colonization of temporality. I think this is really a forefront of contemporary political opposition, or needs to be, which is to reclaim uh, the future from a prehensive uh, neoliberal, even techno-libertarian capitalism, which is attempting to colonize our future through basically technological solutionism. Basically, this is coming out of engineering approaches that are tired and um, simply want to get rid of any kind of democratic practice. If we want to consider this colonization of the future by techno-libertarian capitalism, this is really at the forefront of environmental politics, or needs to be, in my view, today. Because we're facing this well-resourced political ambition that's also aided and abetted by algorithmic governance and the computerization, the cybernetic conditions of uh, engineering uh, the future, basically. Uh, this is the real threat that we're faced with what people like Stuart Brandt and Jeff Bezos and other technocrats call the long now of a 10,000-year extension of the present, right? Bezos is building this 10,000-year clock in his backyard on his Texas ranch. Basically, it's the idea that we're past democratic regulatory politics and we simply need to engineer a future that will save us all. But the, the huge question is, of course, this is, um, it completely bypasses any historical sensitivity to what we've been discussing as the long history of racial capitalist genocides and ecocides, the continuation and afterlife of slavery all those different crucial temporalities that I think necessarily have to inform any notion of a radical future, of an emancipatory future or an emancipatory time to come. So this is part of my uh, current project, which is to, to theorize, to politicize, to enter into conversations with others who are doing this work of conceptualizing and, and thinking about how to practice a radical futurism informed by, say, what Walter Benjamin called the traditions of the oppressed. Uh, and more broadly, how can we think about solidarity across difference, across the identitarian formations of the present? So this is something else that I think necessarily has to come up in terms of our challenging of this calculative rationality, which has a lot of implications in relationship to racialization Uh, identity formation, and the inequalities of the present. How can we think about all this together in relationship to what I think has to be a necessarily intersectionalist, eco-socialist environmentalism today? I've been thinking about this for a long time, having grown up in the middle of London with all kinds of different people, classes, people from different backgrounds. And I thought of it as how to live socially in relation to this tension between conviviality and antagonism. Meaning that, uh, you know, you can have a fight with someone who's a racist and you can also um, get over it, right? It's a process. You know, Denise talks about living with difference without separability. 
which I think is very useful in terms of thinking not just about the human life, but a kind of a socialist uh, way of living with other forms of life as well. So the question of difference, I think, always has to be, it has to be an experiment. And you need class complexity in order to produce good argument. If you don't have class complexity and you don't have uh, racial complexity and you don't have gender complexity, you don't have really much of an argument. You don't have good people to argue with and you therefore don't build any trust. Denise's thought is a challenge to difference because blackness as difference is still within a dialectic schema of Western thought. So the question of the operation of a mathematical nullification is designed to open up a more fundamental way of thinking whose challenge is designed to draw out the fundamental nature of erasure in this country. So, in other words, more history will not do the work that is required in the UK. It's not enough to do memory politics or history politics. I would say even solidarity is not enough. Mm. It needs to be more fundamental in the UK. I'm not talking about the US. I'm not talking about other countries, only the UK now. Can I add something, though? I do want to say that um, I love what Kojo is saying. And at the same time, in the States, we're preparing for an election in November. And I think when I'm suggesting this phrase solidarity across and maybe against difference, this has political urgency I think in terms of an immediate defeat of perhaps the most destructive and dangerous president in U.S. history. Now, we can't hold our breath for any alternative within the current electoral configuration. It takes on a strategic and tactical value in terms of defeating the conditions of white supremacist, police brutality, extractivism, corruption, cronyism, and everything that goes along with it in terms of Trumpism. So solidarity, I think, you know, I, I don't want to give up that term, although I appreciate what Kojo is saying in terms of the, you know, in some ways, the radically more ambitious paradigm shift, moving away from, you know, a counter-imperial, counter-state paradigm shift that would simply entirely move us away from the ontologies of difference. I think that that also has to be within the multi-scalar framework of the transformative politics today. But in the immediate term, solidarity, I think, is a really crucial and underappreciated framework for an ecology of relations that's political and transformative today. I think the tactics required to defeat Trumpism and to defeat to defeat anti-blackness in the U.S., Yes, all tactics are required. I think the, the project in the UK is related but distinct. And so at this point, it requires tactics which are up to this radical root and branch attack, you know, attack on the level of category itself. And this is what Denise represents for us in 2020. Just to add one last thing. I mean, these people don't behave as if they're a nation states anymore. Trump and Bolsonaro and Modi and Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings and Steve Bannon and all these anarcho-capitalists are basically trying to destroy society. We're dealing with the same things, just on different scales, just in different places. Britain is a tax haven for the killing fields elsewhere. The killing fields are in Brazil, in America and in India and in Syria. But, you know, the uh, sense here is that, yes, we also need to have solidarity. But maybe what Kojo is pointing to is a kind of juridical attack as well on the foundational aspects of what it means to be a civilian here 
I mean, these things are also happening in the States as well. People's citizenship is being taken away from them. The civic is being de-civilised. So I think we are dealing with the same enemy. Trump is as much our enemy as Boris Johnson is yours. Yes, I want to thank you a lot for thank this beautiful discussion. Thank you, Kodoeshon. Thank you, Angelika Sagar from the Autolit Group. And thank you, DJ Demos, who initiated this discussion with the Autolit Group in the first place. For us, it is gold to have you here because the discussion closed a circle of questions that we are discussing since the last fall. We started with extinction and also to question this term and how, how it is posed in political activism today and ended with a beyond the end of the world. And I think you are touched upon a lot of things that we have been discussing, but what for me was clarified in a particular way today was this point that the Anthropocene places apocalypse in the future with the danger to erase the past apocalypses, the past extinctions. It is unacknowledged horrors, as you uh, said, and we cannot talk about the Anthropocene, we cannot talk about the Capitalocene without acknowledging the continuity of racial erasure. And then, of course in consequence, to understand that racial capitalism is the modality through which the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene operates. So I'm very thankful for that. We need, as you all said, multi-scalar chronopolitics, such as the example of infinity minus infinity, in order to dismantle these narratives, be it as a fundamental attack on the level of the root of categories, as Kodo said, or in strategic alliances and solidarities, as uh, TJ said. So thank you very much. Since this is the last edition of Burning Futures in this season, I want to thank my co-curator Maximilian Haas for all these inspiring discussions throughout this year. And of course, despite of it all, as Rosa Luxemburg would say, I wish to every one of you a wonderful summer. See you in the next season. Goodbye. Burning Futures. Futures.